Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have another guest for my uh, upcoming book on understanding viruses. Uh, We have Forrest Rower. He's an American microbial ecologist and professor of biology at San Diego State University. Uh, He has uh, several books, uh, you know, on viruses. Uh, His website is uh, coralandphage.org. It's one of the websites you can find out more about him. He's got pretty diverse interests. He also has worked in the marine uh, microbial ecology. So, Forrest, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you. Well, good. Uh, just a brief uh, background on yourself before we get into the questions. What has what your research been about and what is it about now? Yeah, my research is really ecosystems. And the two ecosystems I'm most interested in are coral reefs and the human body. Yeah, why, why coral reefs, by the way? I've, I've interviewed some people about coral reefs after talking to you. And um, it seems like they're kind of an analog, I guess, of the human body. You know, when I... I think about my stomach, uh, a coral reef is like an inside out stomach, it seems like. And it's all, they're also like holobionts and they have yeah. you know, symbionts and phages and all kinds of stuff. But what's your reason? Well, originally, <laughs> I mean, that's true. But originally it was actually because um, I was doing marine ecology and, uh, and viruses in seawater. And I wanted uh, something that stayed in the same place. So corals were kind of a good mixture of that because they were marine, but their uh, rocks stuck to the bottom, so they couldn't move around much. And that's uh, and so I started studying them, but they do turn out to be uh, great analogs for uh, the human body and particularly mucosal surfaces. What's your research uh, right now then? So my research right now is... So in the case of the human body, I'm looking at a disease of the lungs um, called cystic fibrosis. And in this case, that's a disease caused by a genetic change in the human that then creates sticky mucus, which gets colonized by viruses and bacteria and uh, eventually clogs up the lungs. I'm looking at the ecology of that and then coming up with... um, ways of both understanding what's happening in the disease and then looking at potential therapeutics based on uh, information we get from genomic and metagenomic methods. The uh, other thing that we're doing in associated with humans, of course, is we're doing sampling of different environmental reservoirs, looking for SARS-2, the cause of COVID, and trying to get an idea of how common it is in the environment. And then on coral reefs, I'm working um, a lot on uh, applying things that we've figured out about why coral reefs are uh, degrading and seeing if we can come up and uh, use that knowledge to come up with restoration methods for coral reefs. So that's Mm. what I'm doing at the moment, yeah. Yeah, you're pushing forward on a lot of different fronts. (laughs) Mm-hmm. 
Excellent. <laughs> well, now to like more, I guess, maybe more philosophical questions. Um, are there any forms of life that you know of that don't have viruses that prey on them? No. As far wow. as we know, everything has a, a virus. Even um, viruses have viruses, some of them, right? Yes, yeah. There's always viruses on viruses. <laughs> it's not famous. Uh, every parasite has a smaller parasite. Lots of different um, mobile things that, uh, mobile pieces of DNA carrying on viruses. And they par- they're parasitized by transposons and things called uh, virophages and so forth. Hmm. And do you think uh, viruses are alive? or just maybe contingently alive when they enter a cell? What's your thoughts and why? Yeah, I mean, I think of viruses a little differently than that. They're an interesting version of life uh, because most of life, like the cellular version that everybody's taught, of course, is that when you have a cell and it just before it divides into two cells, like everything that was in the original mother cell is then um, half of it's passed on to the two daughter cells. And what's going on is that as you move through time, you actually have uh, literally matter um, moving from generation to generation. What's interesting about viruses is that they don't do that. So they actually move from, they make a, a new virus in a cell, blow the cell up, and then move to a new cell and do an infection and then make a whole bunch of copies and move on to another cell. And when they do that, there's no matter that moves from one uh, virus to the next. So it's that they're completely new. And mm. so that means that they're only moving information between generations. So they're a really interesting twist on biology. It's uh most uh, equivalent to things that humans do with books and so forth. So it's a very, very different a quick, quick question here for us. So has anyone ever tried to somehow fluorescently tag a virus, have it enter a cell and see what happens to the original strand of RNA okay. or DNA that, that went into the cell? Yeah, people follow the nucleic acids, right? So you can uh, just label them with radiation and see does any radiation show up in the uh, in the virus that's going coming out on the other side. And so, you know, at the limit of detection, there it doesn't have have to happen, or it it doesn't happen. Um, what's cool about it, right, is that we actually know that this is true because, of course, you can take and um, take a virus, you can sequence it. So you turn the chemical information into electronic, and then uh, you can then turn that uh, into light by sending it through a fiber optic, uh, send it to a satellite, bring it back down, again, go through an electronic to chemical sort of uh, synthesis event, and you'll get the same virus out. So there's actually, there really doesn't have to be a connection, any physical connection between one generation of viruses and the next. Yeah, well, I just wonder what happens to the uh, original one, you know? Is it like Gandalf, he says, fly, you fools, and it yeah. dies, and the rest of them, you know, leave the cell? It, it, for the most part, uh, it's just being used as a template uh, to make the new viruses. Um, so it's not getting it's not getting repacked, or if it does get repacked, um, it's very rare. Hmm. Well, I guess we just don't know, but hmm, interesting. We do know. We follow them. Oh, we do? Okay. They follow the uh, like with radiation, whether the new or the, whether the original virus gets back out with the new viruses. 
And in all cases where people have done a, a, a close analysis of that, they don't see the original virus making it. Oh, it just stays there and lays amongst the wreckage and then gets gobbled up or something? Exactly. Huh. Interesting. Do viruses uh, have epigenetic marks that you know of? And if so, what's the consequence of that? They're kind of the original uh, epigenetics, um, right? So the like the main defense or what we consider the main defense of uh, viruses against the cell chewing it up it are the restriction modification systems. And those are uh, two component systems where you have a modification, uh, usually like a methylation event that then protects against uh, the restriction enzyme that comes in with the virus. And there are different methylation patterns depending on how the virus replicates. And so you definitely get epigenetic sort of imprinting on viruses. But when, when someone says they've sequenced, you know, a virus, they sequence its, you know, its base pairs, RNA, DNA, whatever it is. But are you able to look at methylation of uh, parts of its genome? Does it yeah. actually experience epigenetic marks itself? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, they huh. can be. Interesting. They, they have all these. Uh, they're, they're much more interesting in that context, right? Because they have... Uh, they carry all these things that it's not just methylation, right? They have all these alternate base pairs and so forth that they use. And those are usually after the genome has been built. So then there's a, an enzyme that comes along and changes the, the base pair itself. So it can still uh, do the proper base pairing, right? So an, an A to a T, a G to a C, but they're modified in some way that they're protected against different enzymes. You know, in general, viruses, at least to me, they seem to have three kinds of main behaviors. You know, they're either lytic, get in there, multiply, blow the cells open, or they, they'll go latent or lysogenic, and then mm-hmm. sometimes they come out of that. And then, you know, in some cases, retroviruses can endogenize in genetic material. What do you think governs what the virus is going to do? And what do you think governs when it changes? It goes from, you know, latent back to lytic. Yeah, so my working model is that for the most part, uh, viruses are sensing the internal um, redox state of the cell, whether that's in bacteria or in eukaryotic cells. And so if the cell is in a building phase, a biomass building phase, what we would call anabolic, they will behave temperately. And that can even be true for things that we classically call um, lytic viruses. So a lot of lytic viruses will kind of hang out with a uh, with a cell for a while before they go into uh, back into their truly lytic state. And then the thing that actually signals the virus to re-enter the lytic state, I think, is when the cell becomes very catabolic. So that's when there's a lot of extra ATP around. There's not a lot of uh, building materials going around uh, to, to build more cells. And the viruses at that point become lytic and kind of get out of there probably as a signal that the cell is going to uh, start to fall apart. Yeah, like we talked about last time, I guess when the conditions are bad, it's like rats leaving the ship and they turn back to being lytic and they multiply and say, let's get the hell out of here. Exactly. They really do seem to have that uh, that built into their <laughs> DNA, literally. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and then, of course, there's all the biological novelties that, that work around those switches. So there will be some viruses that behave uh, just the opposite, just because there's uh, reasons to do that. But um, for the most part, that seems to be the rule. 
everybody's kind of experienced it because we know that if you uh, induce DNA damage, the a lot of viruses become lytic under those conditions also. Yeah. Oh, wow. It, it's huh. pretty. So, so could you say like the healthier you are, the less likely you're going to have, uh, you know, old latent, you know, viral infections coming back at you and the more unhealthy you are, the more that's a possibility. Yeah. It's, it's completely that way. Yeah. You know, you, you have, uh, latent viruses everywhere and they're popping out relatively frequently. So if you look at the blood of a healthy person, there's still a fair number of viruses in there. And that's because there's always some proportion of them that are being activated and producing virions that can be shed. But when the system starts to become immunosuppressed, for example, in the case of a a metazoan, what will happen is that the viruses will really just start popping out everywhere. And it's kind of, you know, it's pretty famous in things like uh, HIV or any place where you get a real big immunosuppression that suddenly you see all these viruses popping out um, and becoming, uh, re-entering the lytic cycle. It happens in cancer patients all the time. Anything really that will lower the health, the metazoan will lead to a whole bunch of viral production. When you say metazoan, you mean like the holobiont? Is that another term for it? No, metazoan, I mean actually animals, right? So true animals, because I, I'm being a little cautious here because I don't know plants as well. So they, these are animals. And of course, since I say the most basal animals, which are corals, <laughs> to, uh, to humans, that's what I'm really thinking about. Okay, gotcha. When a virus uh, endogenizes, you know, we have like old herbs in our DNA and then, you know, new ones, let's say, you know, I get HIV and endogenizes, endogenizes into my DNA. Do you think that the identity and the agency of the virus is preserved in HIV? It seems to be, but with older viruses that have been in my DNA for you know God knows how long, could they ever reactivate and package up virions again and become active? Yeah, you know they do. So, so what you see is you see um, kind of this. There's definitely this uh, pro-viral degradation that as you move through time, they lose the essential bits and eventually become trapped in the genome. What's really interesting is that a lot of them can actually use related uh, virus viruses to be able to become active again. So even though it looks like that the, the pro-virus is dead, frequently we'll actually find that the, the pro-virus has re-entered an active phase or like into a virion and it's doing it by using pieces, parts of other viruses at that point. So it's kind of like complementation between different viruses. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So you see the uh, endogenous retro elements in humans in virions um, pretty regularly, actually. So they, they do <laughs> seem to around, even though they are kind of dead, right? From the, the point of view of that they don't have all of the components that it takes to make them, they still can be activated by other viruses. Wow. It's crazy. Okay. When a virus infects a cell, you know, if I picture it as like the virus is sitting at the control panel of the cell, like how, how far do you think that analogy goes? So do you think infected cells, the virus can use the cell's machinery to send out customize extracellular vesicles to communicate or regulate other cells? Do you think they can do quorum sensing to say, okay, how many 
infected cells are there in the vicinity and should we turn on action, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, they, they can do all of that. And, <laughs> it's, <laughs> and if we don't know of an example, we'll find it if someone goes looking for it. Uh, I, I remember the viruses, for the most part, their genes are, are remain unknown. And most of those genes, my working hypothesis would be, is it's because they're, it's really about the war between uh, viruses between different, so viruses in one cell fighting with viruses in another cell. So like kind of a lysogen on lysogen sort of war, but then also viruses just sensing what's going on. Um, if you see a lot of uh, interferon gamma in your virus that's inside a, a cell, you may really consider getting out of that, right? So the idea that they're carrying the genes that allow them to tune into uh, like the cytokine system or quorum sensing is, yeah, it's been shown multiple times. Um, it's a great place to look for new uh, virology, actually. And it's just really common. So I guess this this probably answers the question of latency. You know, why are some infections they take days, weeks, hours, months, whatever it is to show pathogenicity? Is it, you know, beyond enough cells being infected beyond the exponential replication of, you know, of the virus? What else is there? Do you think the signaling underlies, okay, now we're ready, the, the conditions are right to, you know, to turn on this leak behavior or to turn on this behavior or change yeah. the host in some way? Yeah, I mean, you know, from a, like a virus infecting a human point of view, if you really think about it, entering a, a young person and just hanging out there until at some point that that person starts to uh, fall apart, that's a, a great way of getting around, right? Um, especially if you couple it with, which a, a lot of the, the temperate viruses do, where they'll just produce like, uh, you know, one out of a thousand cells will produce new variants. Um, a lot of the more what we would call chronic infections, so ones that don't even blow up the cell um, when they're leaving, they just bud off some viruses. It's a great way to uh, move through the population. And it seems to be uh, probably the dominant way, right? So the, the viruses that are killing uh, or doing a lot of damage to the host um, are, of course, easily targeted and, um, and removed from the population. The ones that are there and are very subtle and don't seem to be doing much uh, spread through the populations just fine. For example, the, the most common virus we see in the human is the, the TTV viruses. And those guys are literally in everybody we look at. And we can't find any diseases or anything that they're associated with. So they're just kind of moving through the human population, doing just fine. And herpes viruses are another example. You know, herpes, everybody has multiple herpes. And that's true even uh, down into the, the corals, right? So you get, there are different herpes all through the trees, tree of life uh, for animals. And they're doing, uh, mostly they're doing that by remaining uh, uh, hidden from the immune system. Yeah, it's amazing. If I get uh, infected by a virus and, you know, I'm, I labeled myself number one and I'm wandering in the jungle and like some, some bat latches onto my neck and you know, infects me. And then I infect, and then I infect someone else and someone else and someone else and someone else, you know, and that person affects someone else. And it, it passages through like a hundred people, you know, what, what will the infection look like in number 100 you think? 
Yeah, they they all uh, across the board. Um, the rule is they attenuate over time. They just get less virulent. Um, so when you when you're seeing a real virulent in the scenario you're talking about, yeah, if the virus is very is really virulent, um, it either disappears or it attenuates over time. So uh, that's just the rule. So you will see things attenuate. Well, when you say they, they attenuate, does that mean they fail to infect at all? What no. does that they become, they become more latent and they stay with the host? Yeah, they, they, be, they get better and better at avoiding the immune system. And, uh, and usually they become more uh, temperate. Yes. No. And so is there a trade-off there that the, the better you are at, uh, at evading the immune system? Uh, well, first of all, it seems like there's a drive towards commensalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you believe there is. And then, again, is there a trade-off? The, the less virulent I am, the more, the better I am at, you know, hanging out in the host and not, not killing it. That's just, uh, you know, an, a necessary trade-off. So, yeah, for the most part, yes, there, the, your ability to spread is much better by being less virulent because you're underneath the radar. So especially with something like uh, humans, where if there's no indication that someone is, is sick, the chances of the virus moving to someone new is much better than if the person that's that's actually carrying the virus is really sick, right? It's just we're we're good at doing that with our behavior. And that's going to be true of any animal, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be conscious. It just can be anything that would be given indication that someone is carrying a virus. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I just wondered, right. Uh, that was another follow-on question is, you know, do all viruses seem to head towards being commensal or even mutualistic? And it seems like most of them do. Are, are there examples of ones that, I guess, that have infected people for thousands of years, but still seem to be like incredibly uh, lytic? Yeah, so I think the the main one, of course, that everybody would point out is smallpox, right? So smallpox has definitely remained or did until we wiped it out uh, through a concerted effort, uh, very virulent, right? Still had a massive uh, killing of uh, people and so forth. So that is an example, I think, of a virus that was very effective at um, remaining virulent and passing through the human populations. So why do you think that smallpox, for instance, hasn't... uh you know, it hasn't become attenuated. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know smallpox biology well enough. It must be that there's a, uh, that it's really good at, I mean, there's other ones that would fall into this category, like uh, measles and so forth, that as long as you can run your game so that um, that latent, that real latent period, you know, the period where we can't, the eclipse period would be a better word, where we can't observe the virus. If you can, uh, time that so that you're producing enough virions to be transferred, but you're not giving any indication that you're sick. Um, that is really the best way that a virulent virus can get from host to host. What if I catch a virus from someone that's like, you know, on death's door mm-hmm. versus getting it from someone that, you know, is totally fine, barely, you know, barely has any symptoms. I know I have my own genetic makeup, et cetera. How do you think I'll be affected? Do you think I'll tend to be very sick if I get affected from a very sick person? You know, viral yeah. load aside, 
Yeah. I mean, you would expect over time to, to observe actually exactly what you're saying is that that, I mean, that's kind of how people think attenuation works, right? Is that the longer it takes a virus to um, really cause disease in the organism in in uh, in a particular individual amongst the population, the more chances that it has of moving uh, between individuals of the population. And then, uh, so over time, you would just see an extent in time where uh, the viruses could have a more of a chance of moving from uh, individual to individual. So you would guess that something that's very an ac- very acute infection would get, uh, lead to a acute response in the person that got infected, right? And that someone that's got a minor infection uh, would lead to more of a minor infection over time. The challenge, of course, is, is picking apart an acute infection also has a higher infectious dose, whereas a, uh, a less virulent infection has it's producing a lot f- fewer virions. So it, it's, it's still hard to tell, I mean, to answer that question directly, right? Because there's so much of the biology that's moving underneath that the actual generalization uh, that would I get more sick from someone that was sicker? I'd say in general, yeah. And if they're less sick, I would probably get less sick in general. But that doesn't mean you can't get a virus that will just kill you just fine <laughs> from someone who's not very sick. We also have cool virus stories like HIV has the, the more of the quasi-species thing going on where different parts of the viral species do different things. So the within the, the quasi-species that is an HIV, a virus, a cloud of viruses, um, you'll have the, st- the HIV that's better at being transmitted, and then you'll have uh, HIV genotypes that are more virulent in the, when HIV is being transmitted sexually. Usually you go through this step where the person is shedding viruses, and, but the tra- and then they're transmitting them, and that really bottlenecks the, the HIV to some very specific genotypes that are good at moving um, from, uh, plate, from one human to another. And then they have to uh, develop all the diversity that leads to the HIV that's better at killing uh, off the immune system. So that's an example of where the, the, it's actually the, the, the quasi-species itself it's really important for how the virus is moving around. If you get a blood transfusion and you're taking in just a whole bunch of HIV that's already differentiated, then people died very quickly, right? Because they were getting a big bolus of viruses, but they were also getting the type of virus that was the most virulent um, to the immune system. Well, when I get infected by a virus, am I getting infected by one, you know, type of virus and isolate that's only that strand or am i getting infected by dozens hundreds thousands millions of different slight variants quasi-species and if so is there a better effect of one or the other it's both right i mean you can have there's some viruses that you only need one variant to do the infection and then there are others where it looks like you need a whole group of viruses to actually get a productive infection and that, that's a function of both how the virus is behaving and how the immune system is behaving. 
right? So that infectious dose thing is really important. Well, in addition to the dose, though, I mean, so like if, if I think of a, um, you know, a colony of bees, mm-hmm. in, in general, they have they all have the phenotype of bee, but you have workers, drones, queen, et cetera. So they're all different, but they all act in concert to, you know, to be a colony of bees. Do you think viruses at all are like that? Do you think that quasi-species may act in concert in different ways and coordinate infection to be more successful? It it does, yeah. So in some cases, the, the you need kind of a swarm of viruses to be able to get the infection. In other cases, you don't. You just need one virion, and then you just have that one virion is, um, there's, of course, going to be selection on it to be really good at being transmitted and being able to cut, uh, to establish a productive infection. In other cases, you need like a group of viruses to actually get the infection to, uh, to take hold. So the, it's, it runs the whole gamut. And, and you know, post-infection, not in general, but just of a given cell, how much you know what does the progeny of virions look like the progeny of viruses how similar are they how divergent are they you know has anyone looked at infecting successive cells and looked at again at the diversity of the progeny yeah yeah if yeah people know a lot of uh about that and and it's it scales with the type of genome you have and uh the the length of your genome how much variation you have within that those populations. And so it can be quite extreme, right? In the cases of, uh, you know, those small RNA viruses, they have so much variation in each step, right? So each generation is producing, you know, tens of thousands of viruses. And each one of those viruses has at least one mutation, let's say from the parental strain. But, and even the big viruses have uh, a little bit higher mutation rates, right, than, um, than their cellular ca- counterparts. So what's interesting about viruses, not, so I'm going to switch to phage because it's a little easier to think sure. about. Because in the case of a phage, you can think of it as a way, uh, one way to think about why phage are important to the system is that they they actually give the bacteria a way of evolving that does not require it mutating its own genome. So imagine, because we have examples of this, where the phage has a gene that is required to complete the this life cycle that's a, uh, because it's essential for the cell, right? And so what happens is that the cell usually cannot mutate its way out of a problem, right? So that's Moeller's ratchet. You could, uh, it's the idea that really you're mutating is a terrible way to try to get, to find a, a way out of a problem. But with viruses, if you've got the virus carrying a, a homolog to what the cell has, well, each generation of viruses that are produced produce like at least 10 virions per cell and their mutation rate is about 10 times of what the host is. So you already have about 100 times more possibilities being explored. And so you can put pretty strong selection pressure on those viruses because they can't complete an infection cycle without actually encoding this gene that will work. And so that it's bringing that homolog back to the cell 
you do that for a number of generations and you can use homologous recombination to move that mutated viral gene into the cellular component. And it is, it's basically a way to evolve your genome um, without going through all of the painful uh, small mutations to get there. I mean, just in general, it seems like viruses or inflammation and they are tools that are used by you know bacteria and animals and plants, et cetera. But viruses use their hosts as tools as well. They co-opt them and you know use them. How is the uh, I don't know how is the struggle for is there I guess there's a struggle for dominance to either be a tool or to use as a tool. Mm-hmm. It's just funny that viruses seem to be all those things in different contexts. You know? I mean that's always true of biology, right? It depends on. So you use the word like commensalism before, right? So biology always has to work as assemblages, right? There's always some assemblage that is, you know, whether you think of it as an ecological assemblage or something more like a holobiont. Um, And what's going on in those cases is that you have uh, organisms that at one point seem to be cooperating and then at another point are killing each other, right? And it's very, very dangerous to, for your thinking at least, to try to assign whether something is positive or negative. So viruses killing microbial cells seems like a bad thing for the microbial cells. But if there are necessary evil that allows you to evolve very quickly, um, it could be that in the big picture, losing a whole bunch of uh, cells to have a nice evolutionary trajectory is totally fine right? It's, it's no different than us, right? We build this massive, you know, organism to just pass on one sex cell, you know, from generation to generation. So it doesn't really matter that we have literally trillions of cells that are going to die just to get one cell uh, to the next generation. That is how it works for uh, the viral interactions. And it's the more you see that, the more it makes sense, right? We traditionally don't do that because we're focused on the fact that viruses kill us, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? So you're dealing with, uh, it's not really a necessary evil. It's just how the system works. And the systems that you observe are the ones that uh, do some sort of cooperation that allows them to move through time. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just thinking earlier when you talked about, you know, the virus, uh, none of the I mean, you can literally boil it down, I guess, to atoms. None of the atoms that comprise a given virion are the same atoms that are passed on to progeny. Absolutely. And that, that's a, that is really weird, right? I mean, when you, when you think about it a lot, it is a very unique part of biology, right? And that's why I tend to kind of just avoid the question, you know, are they living or not? I mean, they're clearly biological, right? And they're clearly doing some very interesting uh, functions out there. The problem has been that there's more uh, like traditionally biology has really gone down this road, sorry, this route of, you know, it's kind of cell-centric, right? So it's all about the cells, um, which is not really a great way to think because there are literally more viruses than there are cells. And that tells you something about how biology is working. And we should consider that in our fundamental understanding of biology, not just our uh, uh, viruses come along and cause pandemics sort of things. 
Well, I mean, if you look at a cell or a bacteria, where is the life in each? You know, I mean, I don't know. There's nothing that you could dig around for and you say, oh, there it is. You know, it's yeah. like an assemblage and it's also like a continuum of, of, you know, it's not just like a discrete thing. If I consider a virus when it enters a cell, if it's just a strand of genetic material, where is the life in it? Where is the agency? Where is all this ability? It's weird. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, if you consider like a, if you consider, let's say one of our cells, do you think that it, it itself is an assemblage of it? It's like, it has its own microbiome in a way where like the RNA is inside it and the DNA and, you know, other materials are, are constituents of the cell, but they're, they all have their own degree of agency. So I, I don't, I mean, you can, right? And people do, but I think of it a little differently that any living thing, whether you want to call it an organism or not, has to find an environment where it can do a replication, right? And so that's that's true whether you're uh, like a tree, right? Or a human or a cell or a virus. Um, It just turns out that uh, viruses tend to go right to the all the goody parts of it, right? <laughs> so they go to where they can just get all of the things that it takes to make a new virus. Uh, they can just steal it from this environment uh, very directly. If you take something like a tree, it does it um, in a pretty complex way, right? It is taking much more basic elements and, and molecules and converting them into something that's living. So it it really does depend on, um, if you look at it that way, really, it, it's all just a continuum of finding the right environment for, your, uh, for you to be able to get, continue through time. It's easy to take a human cell and put it into a tissue culture dish and get it to replicate just fine. But in that case, we don't, uh, we're really just feeding it all of the stuff that it needs. That's really no different than a virus, right? With viruses, you can do that too. You can give them kind of the internal workings of the cell and actually in some cases get them to repackage and make a new uh, virus. Okay. Well, yeah, this leads into a question I had. So if I had a, um, a cell and I sucked out some of the components of it or all the components, but I preserved the membrane had all the receptors looked right and then a virus comes along and attempts to fuse you know, would it attempt to fuse? Would it enter or would it stop at some point and it's sensing that something's wrong? So for the most part, they can sense whether the cell is living or not. In particular, it's a proton motor force, it looks like, is one of the main things that they sense. But that's not completely true. There are examples of viruses infecting basically the, the shell, the husk of cells. And then there are even examples of where cells kind of make decoys so they bud off, you know, something kind of like a liposome, and then the viruses will target those. Um, so there, you know, it's it runs the gamut of of these sorts of possibilities. Hmm. Yeah, I thought of making like a virus trap. You know, if you could make a a, a membrane with the right receptor, but nothing was inside, yeah. perhaps you can get viruses to dump their cargo, and then no one's home and they're stuck. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, you know, there's people that really think about that uh, using what they call mini cells, um, which are basically bacteria without. So they're just little uh, pieces of bacteria 
uh, that, that form kind of, again, like a liposome, um, but they don't have anything to replicate anymore. But you can get them, you can put whatever you want on the surfaces of these things. So then the idea would be you produce many cells, um, you inject it into the blood of someone who's infected, and then you'll get the viruses to infect it, and then that will... Uh, virus will die because it's injected its nucleic acids into the wrong thing. It doesn't really work in most cases because, you know, in the case of at least in eukaryotic viruses, for the most part, they have to be engulfed. So you really need a lot of active stuff going on. It's not completely true. There's a whole bunch of fusing sorts of viruses, and it may be a useful tactic. What you're suggesting may be a useful tactic. Um, I don't know where it's used, but um, I definitely know people have looked at that a lot, actually. Hmm. Um, do you think there's a matching between tropism and transmission method? So if someone coughs on me and you know I get the flu, my respiratory cells are the ones that seem to be you know primarily affected. And that's also the method of transmission. You know, rabies, someone bites me and it gets transmitted through saliva. And then, you know, maybe I'm encouraged to bite someone else and transmit yeah. it that way. Do you think there's this matching or is it just there's a few cases only? Oh, no, it, it's definitely matched nicely. Um, it's And it, it's because that's, you know, you always need the positive feedback uh, for for evolution, right? So it's uh, it's got to be something that makes one route of replication better than another, right? So it, it totally makes sense if you're a, a virus moving in the blood of humans to have part of your life cycle be in the solid salivary glands of a mosquito, right? And that that's independently coming from a whole bunch of different directions. So yes, you definitely have what the tropism is versus how the virus makes a living. It's definitely going on and strongly selected for. Yeah, well, like how could there be this this matching? You know, how could a, you know, anthropomorphizing, how could a virus know that, you know, that, okay, well, this is the way to spread. Do they gain somehow intelligence from the cellular machinery? Do they tap into the, the cell's senome? I mean, you know, how far does it go, do you think? Well, you know, the, what, you, what you have, of course, is you have, uh, I mean, it, it's just regular evolution in the sense that you just have massive numbers of this stuff happening all the time. And when the right combination happens, then you see it expand and become fixed because of that, right? If you're a virus that's hanging out in a plant and you're recombining with other plant viruses that, you know, then let's say just like a, a sap sucker, and then somehow you, you gain things that will allow you to uh, be transmitted to another plant, right? Uh, that has not been colonized by a lot of viruses, then you'll definitely see that move forward, right? There will just be more of it. Um, so it's, I, I tend to think of it as positive feedback loops that put things together that create more things that are successful. That's, the, I think, the easiest way to think about it. And the numbers are just massive, right? So even though it seems unlikely, it's, it's not. You're talking... 10 to the 23 possibilities per, you know, at least for vi or for phage, 10 to the 23 possibilities within a population. And so you could have selection pressures that are way small, right? And you could, and they would still be selected. So it's very, uh, yeah, it's just the number of games. 
Yeah, so I was going to ask you about infection. You know, um, if, if a virus on average is 50 to 100 nanometers, and, you know, me as a host, I'm gigantic compared to that. How have there been countless successful viral infections over over the years? It is such a, you know, like you're, they're a tiny speck in a vast expanse of, of possible hosts. How do they find their their targets so often? Yeah, I mean, it, again, just just massive numbers. <laughs> like in the end, <laughs> it really is just a numbers game. And there are just so many possibilities of them be able to do these cool things that I would say mostly you can equate the success of the, of the viruses one of the main things is that there are just so many of them so that there's so many possible things that they could have explored, so many possible different types of uh, ways of making a living. Yeah. Hmm. Do viruses ever coordinate action to infect a cell? Is it, you know, is that the right model where it's just one virus, one cell, and that's it? Or, you know, do, the, do I don't know, do viruses literally uh, attach and communicate through cell membrane or even through the cytoplasm somehow and then coordinate entry? Yeah, so there are quite a few uh, like co-infection sort of things that happen where one virus is kind of dependent on another virus for being able to do an infection. I, I think it's more the exception than the rule because the I would say most viruses actually are trying to protect their host cell so that they can um, get away from, so that they don't let the host cell die, <laughs> right? So um rather than doing a coordinated attack or having um, selection that allows a coordinated attack to happen. Um, they actually do it in a different way where they are trying to protect their host cell so that they can get the resources from that host cell. Yeah, so if, if one virus infects a cell, will it act as like a dog guarding a bone and prevent other viruses from getting in there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the main thing that's going on is that the, the, the cell is carrying a provirus. Often, if probably in, I would assume in uh, the majority of the cases, the virus is actually protecting the cell against other viruses. It has to. And then even against other things, right? Even helping it, uh, you know, it's hiding, right? So if you're a single cell in uh, like seawater or something, you need to protect your cell, your cell, it went your when you're the virus, you need to protect yourself against other viruses and you need to protect against uh, things that would eat you like protists and so forth. Hmm. So it's really common, yeah. So viruses have to protect their cells or they're yeah. dead. Uh, that's true, that's true. Probably the, the main uh, selection pressure out there on cells, honestly, because <laughs> wow. it's just so common, right? So think every cell that you have is, you know, been under multiple viral attacks. And so if you're a virus inside those cells, you know you're going to be at war to protect that cell. Makes sense. Okay. Well, very good. Forrest, it's awesome to talk to you. I mean, I, you know a lot. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work and your interests? Where can they go? Uh, mostly the, just the, um, the website is a great way to find out. Like just my, yeah, because I'm mostly a, pri you know, I'm basically a, uh, a researcher, right? So everything is in the primary literature. <laughs> so my website and my books are meant for people that aren't in the field, right? And they want to uh, read about what we're doing. That's great. Okay. Well, Forrest, thanks so much for coming back. I really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.